0: Said I was from somewhere upstate Never telling the truth i got gotten out of this horrible house And out of this terrible town With a terrible school full of horrible kids And away from my grandma The crazy old lady who lived on a hill And ranted and raved and embarrassed me So like a scarlet Oh, I said As God is my witness I'll never Erased, never again.
1: So Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 15th, 2020. My name is James Marino and on the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also the founder and editor of com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at com. Good morning, Michael. Hi, folks. Hello. So we, um, hmm. in anticipation of what has happened here, uh, we have been... Uh, Recording for 11 years with social distancing. Yeah. So, (laughs) in three different locations, or even more than three different locations, we've been doing this. And uh, a little bittersweet news is that uh, today is our 11th anniversary.
2: Is that right? This week
1: on Broadway, with uh, nearly 600 (laughs) shows. Wow. Wow. Beware the eyes of March. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Uh, It's funny
2: you mentioned uh, social distancing because we used to talk about social media, but uh, now it's social distancing that we talk about much more. Um, What can we do?
3: And over that period of time, we've, uh, in addition to our own discussions amongst ourselves, we've had some really pretty amazing guests on our podcast, including the late Mark Crowley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That was one that I went back and listened to this earlier this week after he he died, and uh, we had him on when they were about to release that documentary about the whole boys in the band phenomenon yeah. called mm-hmm. "Making the Boys," mm-hmm. and it's just you know just such a privilege to be able to talk with people like that on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, Indeed. yeah, it's been a
1: uh, it's been such a incredibly long week. I, I even forgot that I thought that we had already talked about Mart, um, but it. I'll put a link to our interview with Mart. And Michael pointed out something very interesting on the uh, the interview with Mart was uh, we also talked about other various things about. Um, uh, La Fall was in uh, a revival on Broadway at the time and they were having problems with their, one of their leading men and, uh, Riot. and, uh, <laughs> we sort of predicted what would happen in that, in that circumstance. So in the, in the last couple of weeks, we've been, uh, talking about, uh, the impact of the COVID, uh, virus, uh, coronavirus, excuse me, COVID-19 and its impact on Broadway and, uh, We talked last week about the possibility of it shutting down Broadway and it has come to pass. And so what has, you know, we had a Mm -hmm. couple of days of performances and then a couple of days of uh, non-performances. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the last time... Uh, this has happened. Was, was it the hurricane or was it nine eleven, Peter or Michael? Do you remember?
2: I was out of town for the uh, hurricane, so I um, I don't even know if uh, shows didn't run during the hurricane. Did they?
3: Hurricane Sandy. I, don't I have remember. no idea. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I
1: remember Michael? You you're saying the strike, the musician
3: strike or the actor strike? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a very different um, yeah. situation, but but that I couldn't remember. Um, there were, everyone's been talking about there was a musician strike in the seventies that was really bad, but then there was that other one uh much more recently, and I can't remember um i I couldn't find immediately find any info on it uh, I mean I'm sure it's there. I just typed in mm-hmm. the wrong thing uh-huh. but do you remember it was in the um I think a musician yeah. No, it was I remember that you 2000s. know you know. I what I remember is what the show a show that was playing was how the Grinch stole Christmas. <laughs> uh, so whenever that was, because um, I remember Patrick Page being interviewed about the situation, and I don't remember how long it was, but it was more than a few days. Uh, maybe it was about a week. I I'm just
1: 2003 musician
3: strike. Oh, you found it! Great, yeah, thanks. I found it. Yeah.
1: AFM uh, struck, but certainly we had a. Uh, Broadway closed for a couple of weeks uh, right after 9-11. I think that Broadway was closed for a few days right after Hurricane Sandy, but it wasn't very long. Uh,
2: No, um, 9-11 I I think was two days because I remember going on the 13th um, to uh, The Music Man uh, because I wanted to see how... People would react to you got trouble right here in River City, and um, really, it, yeah, it was I, two I don't days. Remember it being
1: that that mm-hmm. short? I mean, I remember you're in town taking such a hard hit after 9-11. Maybe it yeah, was were, just because nobody did, because nobody was showing up.
2: Or, right. well, that nobody was showing up to the music band, I'll tell you. Um, I don't think there were 200 people in the theater. Uh, there were rows and rows of empty seats that Thursday night. It was, it was really, uh, amazing. And I was very interested to see how the actors would be able to handle this. And they handled it extraordinarily well. It was like business as usual. Mm. The only difference at the end, um, a flag came down, and they sang, um, God Bless America. And then I went to the stage door to see, um, two friends um, and who were in the cast and um, and the people were coming out of the theater, uh, the stage door, the actors, um, they were all in tears. It was amazing. They really held it in for all that time. But once the performance was over, they all let it out. So they were real pros in giving a show when people needed a show and um, and then becoming themselves as soon as it was over. So it was very effective and it'll be very interesting to see what happens when this resumes. And of course, we hope it's no longer than the 12th to 13th. Oh, God. Yes.
1: Yes. So, uh, officially, what the press release has put out was that it's going to be a 30 uh, a, a day or four week closure of Broadway uh, because Broadway exceeds the. Uh, the numbers that were set forth by uh, the Governor Cuomo of New York State uh, of any any venue with over five hundred seats uh, will need to n- not uh, meet venues under five hundred seats, which includes the helen hayes it 's a four ninety nine um,
2: no, I think the Allen Hayes is um is more than that. I think it's 540 something. But um, you know frankly, since the renovation I can't be sure. But um what I I guess it would make no business sense whatsoever to open Broadway shows and um have sell seats, you know, three apart, that type of thing because I guess they wouldn't make enough money to sustain themselves. Yeah. Um, which is really too bad, but, um,
1: it hasn't totally affected off Broadway right now, off Broadway, uh, spaces. We were just talking about Dana H. Dana H Sus- suspended their, uh, performances from March 13th through March 31st on their own. They weren't required to, and they're going to be coming back after March 31st, um, and they've uh, extended through April 19th, but they're only going to sell 50% of their seats. So that's a whole, only 143 seats uh, that will be for Dana H. Off-Broadway. And I, and I believe that other Off-Broadway uh, performances, some of them have taken this out. You're going to have to really check. Uh, well, Harry Townsend's Last Stand is still playing.
3: Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. So,
2: um, which is really interesting because, of course, they do say that um, the virus is worse for people over 60. And you certainly have somebody over 60 in Harry Townsend's Last Stand, and that's Len Carew. Mm. So um,
1: it's the other person in the New York Times, you know, Stephen Sondheim and. Did mm-hmm. you guys see that? Did you see the New York Times uh, yeah. the Sunday Sunday Times uh, miss? Uh, well, didn't identify Len Carey. They identified him as an unknown man in yeah. uh, the uh, the feature on Stephen Sondheim turning 90, 90 years old. Yeah, yeah.
3: Which is a oh, wonderful gosh. wonderful feature. It sure is. It sure <laughs> so
1: is. So they were like Angela Lansbury, Stephen Sondheim, and an unknown man. Yeah, quite uh, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah. <I> think. <laughs> Gave us something else to. Uh, ratchet up our, our outrage for... I, uh, s-
3: I did see another one. I, I think I, I saw it online, but it was a photo of Zero Mustel in uh, forum, uh, uh-huh. and they said with unidentified actress, but I but she, whoever she was, I don't think she was as famous as Lynn Carreux. Uh-huh. So I'm not uh-huh. sure if, if somebody figured out who she was. I hope they did. Yeah.
1: So um, uh, what are your... Um- Extended thoughts about this. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is that uh, the West End is open right now.
2: I know. And, isn't that something? And, know. you know, and, and, and they have more uh, problems than we do. What I feel bad for is all my friends who are um, mm. uh, out of towners. I mean, Doug Kingsman came from Australia uh. to see shows and went back. Uh, Aubrey Berg, who was the um, head of the CCM uh, program, was coming in. Bill Kamberger from Baltimore was coming in. Jay Clark from Chelmsford, Massachusetts was coming in. Um, Really, it it was amazing how many people were. uh, Bird Bonner from San Antonio was coming in. So many of these people um, were coming in. Some had tickets. Some are on the phone day and night trying to get, um, changes, refunds, whatever. Um, some are easier than others. I hear, I do hear that everybody's been cooperative, but I do know that, um, some people call up and, um, I told, you know, you'll be, uh, online for, you know, 82 minutes type things and how hard that is too. Uh, so, so I, I really feel bad for the out of towners who um, had been planning these trips and counting the days like a kid till Christmas until they can see these shows and um, And now they're not going to be able to uh, you know, I think Bill Camburger had tickets for the closing of the inheritance, and who mm. knew the closing of the inheritance yeah. happened three days earlier than it was expected, mm. because he loved the play, and I uh, wanted to see it one more time, and that was denied him. So um, I know these things sound really petty in the big scope of things. Please don't misunderstand that. I think that uh, it only comes down to this, but I do think it's worth mentioning that um, for many of us who live here uh, and go to the theater. Um, that's one thing, but for people to make all these plans and pay this money and and hotels and all that, and you have to cancel that as well. Um, so, so it's, it's really, um, it's sadder for them than it, than it is for us, um, who live here and just have to bide our time and we'll be rescheduled into shows and what have you. So, so it's, it's, but you know, it had to happen. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, this is obviously very severe. Um, This is not the common cold or flu as um some politicians made it out to be. Apparently, it's much worse. I mean, so every day you hear about people dying. So I mean, what can you do? I mean, this is just a, a horrible thing. This is certainly, huh, I mean, the year is far from over. God knows. But this seems as if it's going to be the story of the year. And if it isn't, I don't want to think what the story of the year will be. <laughs> um
3: yeah i was um yeah i mean we want to stress the fact obviously this is a theater podcast so we're Pretty much limiting ourselves to that aspect of this, but we recognize that uh, that's only one small part of it. Uh, I mean, in our world, it's a huge part of it, mm-hmm. and it does affect a tremendous amount of people, obviously. Uh, yesterday, I was in the uh, grocery store, which I have to, it's so. I don't know. Have you guys found this things are Oh, yeah. Spotty. It's like spotty, mm, empty. No, but uh, no. But yet mm-hmm. other places, uh, it seems like uh, you walk in and it seems almost normal. I mean, they. Even I had, haven't
2: had that experience. Like, I mean, uh, Whole Foods shelves were totally
3: empty. That's what I'm told. And I don't doubt it. But uh, the Food Emporium looked like a, a normal store. They even had toilet paper. Wow. Wow. They oh, had single rolls, news. but they had a lot of them. <laughs> yes. it was they interesting. Twenty third, and 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 you know between.
2: I don't know yeah, if this that's... is a comment on what people are eating, but um, what was really interesting to me in terms of whole foods was the fact that plenty of fruit, plenty mm-hmm. business as usual, no cereal whatsoever, plenty of yogurt, um, whatever that means. Now it just means they have back. Yeah, those they are those perishable. Are things that
1: perishable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sure. Sure. You know, I mean, um, so, uh, but I was very, very surprised to see empty shelves in whole foods. And of course people online have been posting pictures of their own supermarkets where the shelves are very empty. So, um, and, you know, Ed Gaines, who runs uh, Broadway Select, the website that I write reviews for every Monday, uh, was lamenting. Uh, he has two theaters, St. Luke's and the Actors Temple. And, um, of course, both of those are shut down. Um, and even though, um, as he said, the 500 seat rule uh, can be uh, applied to him, that he could do, you know, every other seat, the producer said, I just can't afford it. And so his shows are closed. But the point is St. Luke's is on Restaurant Row. He hmm. says it's just so terrible to see so many hmm. um, empty chairs at empty tables at uh, right. places like Joe Allen's and right. and, and all right. that. And of course, we have to worry about how many we'll have to throw in the towel that a lot of these places, I mean, restaurants and, and hotels work at a 1% um, profit margin. So um, this could really a lot of businesses we're used to seeing may close up. I mean, it's amazing how many businesses do go out of business in new york and we so many see so many empty storefronts and so many restaurants and um other stores are here today gone tomorrow
3: but um we may see a lot more of that and a lot of shows that will uh not reopen i I hate to even say it and then of course the ones that uh, we're going to be limited runs anyway. Who knows when we'll see Love Life now? When or if we'll mm. see Love Life? Yeah, we, you know, just just one maybe tiny next season, example next well, season
1: at Encore's. So, yeah, um, uh, I mean, uh, City Center is so heavily scheduled as a rental space and other types of things going in and out of there that uh, you know. I can imagine that.
2: My guess will be that um, they will do Love Life next season, but it's nothing more than a guess. The question will be, um, indeed, is this even going to affect Thoroughly Modern Millie? Um, We have no idea how long this is going to last. And for that matter, you know, I mean, getting people together and getting them in rehearsal. And I mean, rehearsal (laughs) does not involve social distancing, does it? So um, I think Millie is very uh, threatened. um, But yeah, boy, Love Life, so snake bit from day one. <laughs> and, um, you know, back in 1948 when it didn't get a cast album because there was a strike. And I mean, it's, it's really fallen in the, uh, by the wayside. And so finally, and for years, everybody was saying, oh, please do love life, do love life. And now here it finally happens. And now it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, and, um, <clears throat> and I'm particularly sad uh, because I was supposed to write a, an article for the Kurt Vile newsletter about it. And, um. I was raring to go, um, and watching the video that uh, was made at the University of Michigan some time ago. So, <laughs> anyway, um,
1: what are your uh, thoughts about? We're supposed to come back through uh, April twelfth. Um, the s- supposedly the theaters will reopen after April twelfth. Uh, well, they just every- had
3: to pick a date, and you know, an arbitrary date. Uh, that's I don't
1: know thing. if they picked an arbitrary date.
3: Oh, okay. As then much we'll-
1: as. Uh, as much as um, what worked out with a lot of contracts, there's uh, an actor's equity co- – in the actor's equity production contract, there is the allowance for the ability to suspend performances for 30 days without paying oh. the actors. Oh, um, oh, and i oh. think that that carries over into i'm not 100% sure i think it carries over to other contracts with broadway unions so i think that people are going to have to fish or cut bait on april 13th
2: james uh, do you know anything about uh, insurance
1: uh, uh, i do you know uh, certainly you can buy insurance for all sorts of all sorts of things now there's an uh uh, clause in uh, insurance called force majeure uh, that right. um, uh, and it would depend upon uh, uh, if the force majeure uh, if coronavirus is covered under force majeure or not so that uh, productions can keep their head above water and of course not a requirement to buy this insurance and it's expensive so whether or not it happens or not, certainly we're going to see the Wickets and the Hamiltons and uh, various other you know, high-performing shows come back without an issue. But the ones that are on the cusp uh, could be very difficult. But if we come back April 13th, what does that mean for the Tony Awards?
3: I imagine it will be postponed by a month. Or some people are suggesting until the fall. Interesting. That might uh, make
2: more sense. Well, the board of directors of uh, the awards that I give out every year, the Theater World Awards, uh, we're talking about September. So, um, Uh, okay. so um, that makes sense to you, Michael, because uh, people go away for the summer. um, Because why? I mean, I I don't see any problem with doing the Tony's the first Sunday in July.
3: Well, just because, uh, you know, I mean, it'll take if nothing else, it'll take things a while to gear up again. And uh, then people will have, p- voters will have less time to see shows um, and all of those things. It just seems to me that it would take the pressure off. And, and also, uh, you know, argue, I'm on top of all that. The, the viewership would presumably be uh, even more lower. In, well, well, maybe higher in the fall than, than in July. In summer, yeah. Yeah. So what about
1: um, not having a Tony Awards this year?
3: Well, yeah, that could happen as well. Not
1: having a Tony Awards and taking all these have a a Tony Awards next June 2021. uh, That encompasses two years. (laughs) What an interesting theory (laughs) that would really be a race. (laughs)
2: Oh, you know uh, boy, people talk about um, shows opening in the spring, because if you open in the fall, people forget about them. I mean, wow. I mean, this week I I was invited back to Tina and um, I'm going to be perfectly frank that um, I had forgotten how magnificent Adrian Warren is. Magnificent. And, you know, I mean, here it is. She's been running for a long time. It wasn't as if a million critics were in the house. I didn't see any of my brother wizards, as uh-huh. I like to call them uh-huh. from the Wizard Wars. <laughs> um, I saw nobody else. There was Tuesday night. And uh, to say she was giving 100%, it was a great underestimation. And what the other thing I said to my girlfriend, she agreed with me entirely. It wasn't just that her performance is terrific, but also there's a feeling that she's grateful for this opportunity. There's something about the performance that indicates I know how lucky I am to have this part, and um, and as a result, I am not going to do anything but give 100-plus percent, and it, it, it was just flabbergasting to see her do this so, so well, and I was delighted, and again – um, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, she's not going to win because this lady in Carolina changes tremendous. Um, well, if they do invite people back, you know, I'm not so sure. But are they going to invite people back next April uh, for the Tonys in 2021? Um, you know, uh, will she still be doing it? Who knows? But um, but yeah, you know, I mean, that famous thing about you forget what happens in the fall will certainly be true if they postpone the Tonys for a year and have two years worth for one um, awards.
1: All right. So uh, uh, we're going to have a n- sort of normal show today uh, because we do have some things that uh, we have seen in the last week or so that uh, we haven't reported on yet. Uh, and to be well,
2: perfectly frank, how many times have
1: we talked about shows that
2: have closed? You know, yeah. So as a result, in a, in a strange way, um, we're talking about shows that have closed but um, are – perhaps an abeyance because so many, I mean, I, I went to the, what turned out to be the final performance of unknown soldier uh, at playwrights horizons. I didn't know it was the final performance, but then on Facebook, Tom Sesma uh, said last night was our final show. And um, so we know they're not going to uh, come back and do it even for a few days. I mean, it it is over. And uh, so uh, we have, It's a show that unexpectedly closed, um, though I guess it was only running till Sunday. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, so here we go with shows that um, have temporarily or totally closed.
1: Okay, so before we get on to our reviews, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia?
2: Ah, ah, yes, indeed. (laughs) It was funny because um, this was one that a lot of people tried again, uh, the same um, wonderful usual suspects that we have who are so good at this, uh, the Brigadudes, the, um, but um, Tony Janicki, uh came in third this week. Uh, um, so the question was, he was the leading man of a very high profile 60 musical that had some of Broadway's greatest creative names attached. The show in which his sister appeared opened just a bit less than a year later. Very low profile, and yet it ran more than twice as long as her brother's eagerly anticipated musical. That's showbiz, folks. Who are the brother and sister, and what were their respective shows? Well, we're talking about Sergio Franchi, who starred in Do I Hear a Waltz, written by no less than Richard Rodgers, Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence. It opened in March 1965 and lasted 220 performances. In March 1966, his sister, Dana Valerie, that's her name, opened Wait a Minim, a South African review. It may be forgotten now, and his cast album has never been officially transferred to CD, but it lasted 456 performances, more than twice as long as Do I Hear a Waltz. So Corey Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner and Tony Janicki, and that was it. Only three people got it, though many people did try
1: Okay, so uh, at the end of today's uh, broadcast, we will ask next week's question. Mm -hmm. So let's move forward into uh, some reviews. Michael, you saw Girl from the North Country. So tell us what you thought
3: about this. (laughs) I did. And, you know, this is a case where I guess (laughs) there are shows we love and shows we really don't love. And and at a time like this, uh, you know, it's hard to really hit on a show that that you don't like because things are so bad in the world and and uh we have to put everything in perspective so i guess i'll just say that this show is not for me at all i had that reaction when i saw it downtown at the public uh i was hoping that maybe i i might change my mind when i saw it on broadway but absolutely not i uh the book by Connor McPherson, who also directs the show, uh, he has concocted this story about a bunch of people in a boarding house in Duluth, Minnesota, in 1934, and uh, used it as a framework for dozens of Bob Dylan songs. Um, on the on the uh, oh, by the way, Dylan was born in Duluth, Minnesota, in nineteen forty one uh so I guess that's what gave him the germ of the idea, mcpherson, although you know i mean nineteen thirty four is not nineteen forty one and he was only born then, and he of course really came of age, Dylan did in the sixties uh or the late 50s, starting in the late fifties maybe um so uh i i uh, it it does seem it has struck some people as an odd choice. To begin with, that said, uh, the music has such a wonderful folk quality to it uh, that I will say that it did not seem uh, ill suited to the period or the or the setting. Uh, And that's one of the strong points of the show. And the other main strong point is that the music, uh, all of the songs are performed so well. By a really, really amazing cast, uh, and I'm going to actually just name all of them because I can't believe the, the talent level here. Well, I can believe it. I've <laughs> seen this before, but really, uh, Todd Alman, Jennifer Bayardell, Caitlin Houlihan, Robert Joy, who. <laughs> It was in one of the first shows I ever saw. Mark Kudish, Luba Mason, Matt McGrath, Tom Nellis, Colton Ryan, J.O. Sanders, Austin Scott, Kimber, Elaine Sprawl, Mayor Winningham in a magnificent Mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. Um, Matthew Frederick Harris. I'm sorry. Matthew Frederick Harris, John Schiappa, Rachel Stern, Chelsea Lee Williams. And that doesn't count the understudies. It's... um, you know it's quite a large cast uh, so i uh, but my main problem here is that I think that the book is tremendous at the same time um, tremendously cliched and also very melodramatic and I actually think there are too many characters uh, i the the actual dialogue is is surprising to me how how clunky and obvious and pedestrian it is from Connor McPherson who has written several pre- plays that I well s- several plays that have gotten great response and I haven't seen all of them but the ones I have seen uh the good thief um the weir and dublin carol I enjoyed all of those very very much so I'm as surprised surprised as anyone else uh that this really did not work out, but the other thing is that you know in in this era of social media, as we 've said before it 's more obvious than ever before how uh, how diverse opinions can be on any show even even a show that is perceived as an all out absolute masterpiece and a tremendous hit by most people is going to have some people who, who really don't like it at all. And conversely, the huge flops uh, that get generally terrible reviews are going to have their champions. So um, that said, Girl from the North Country, uh, based on what I have read, is one of the most divisive shows that has opened recently recently. Uh, uh, very significantly, Ben Brantley of the New York Times loved it off-Broadway and loved it on-Broadway and wrote uh, the kind of review that would normally uh i mean if it was just judging from that review alone would would sell it out for (laughs) months if not years um now we have this horrible situation going on so we'll see what happens with girl from the north country and all the rest of the shows on broadway but uh i yeah i um and for what it's worth my uh my theater companion was with me he thought it was one of the least satisfying let's put it that way shows he's ever seen on Broadway and actually uh, the friend in question is from Minnesota and he was questioning uh, some of the historical accuracy of it but he wasn't sure so he looked it up afterwards and it does seem odd that they um, that given the specific setting and time that they chose to uh, make it so much about um, Uh, well the struggle the black people uh because as my friend said uh went after and and confirmed after he looked it up uh there's some discussion of uh of uh well clan-like activities and things of that sort and lynchings and uh, and there are several black characters in this in this production black characters and black actors but uh but what my friend discovered and reconfirmed when he looked it up is, he said that actually at that time there were more Indians or Native Americans, uh, to be more accurate, uh, and and actually more white people lynched than than black people. So uh, you know, if if this was going to be about that, it, I suppose it might have been better said in in the South or some other area. But uh, whatever, I, that just struck me as a little odd. I also think it's um strange that there are not one but two mentally defective characters in this piece in this show so that there again strikes me as just not good writing i i wonder why he decided to do that mcpherson i don't quite get it um i would say it's very well staged as far as the blocking and the uh, all the lighting and all of that is is very good the uh the band sounds great. Luba Mason doubles on drums uh, for many of the songs, and even Mark Kudish does for one or two numbers. Um, the entire cast is great. I mentioned Mayor Winningham. Uh, uh, this Colton Ryan has, is really uh, coming into his own in several shows. I uh, The first time I saw him was in Alice by Heart, uh, and I thought, wow, who is this guy? And he... Uh, is does a very good job in *Girl from the North Country* as an alcoholic young man who uh, is—we're not sure what's going to happen with him. Uh, but there's a lot of subplots. There's a lot of uh, some of it is framed as a, a murder mystery, and I—I I, I just personally really did not respond to the book. I wish I did because I do love the musical component of the show so much. And I think the cast is amazing, but um, hopefully like every other show girl from the North country will survive and people will be able to uh, check it out themselves and make their own decisions.
1: All right. So uh, I was supposed to see girl from the North country, but my performance was canceled. So I, I can't really report on it, but Michael had the same experience as you downtown. And I was hoping when it moved uptown, uh i would like it better so Mm -hmm. i I don't know if if i'll get that chance but if i do i'll report back to everybody on this
3: it's so weird i I may have mentioned this when i saw it downtown it was a it was a huge hit you know because it's in a fairly small theater and it had gotten that new york times rave and several other raves uh but then the night i went it seemed the audience including me seemed very unresponsive and i I was unresponsive because I didn't like it at all. And I remember, um, I don't remember if it was intermission or after the show, I was walking out and one of the ushers commented to another usher. uh, She said something along the lines of, I don't know what's wrong with this audience. (laughs) Ah. And I thought, "Hmm, well, that that indicates to me that that some nights, uh, the audience in general is really, really responding really well. And then, For some reason, uh, this night, they did not. Uh, So I find that fascinating. And I guess we've all seen that um, uh, where where a whole audience is responsive or unresponsive, and there can be mitigating factors, but I don't know. uh, I mean, that usher seemed very, very surprised. It sounded like there was the first audience that she had seen that did not respond to this show, which had gotten rave reviews and was a huge hit. So I'm not sure what's... What? how people are I, 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 don't, I don't understand this phenomenon in terms of girl from the North Country
1: Alright so um, next up we have Unknown Soldier, Peter got down to Playwrights Horizons to see Unknown Soldier uh, so Peter why don't you tell us about this
2: Well um, I didn't respond to this as much as I wanted to and I would think that this is a story that would um, certainly interest me And I'm going to blame the set designer on this one. And um, this is the second um, time this year that we've had um, a show that had a problem with a set. Um, The first one, of course, was Greater Clemens. I've since learned that so many people complained about their seats at greater Clements that they couldn't see anything that actually Lincoln center gave them refunds. Um, I have that on good authority. Now,
3: if somebody says, no, that's not true. Believe that person. But, and then, um, you know, Peter also, they, they also closed eventually once one or two sections of the the audience there. This is a different circumstance.
2: Um, The unknown soldier um, is in a proscenium set. You can see everything um, in, whatever seat you're in a playwrights horizons, that's not the issue, but I'm sorry to say the set is sterile and it seems to be in an office where there are many, many file boxes, you know, the boxes with those, um, horizontal spaces at the top. So you can pick them up, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, lots of boxes like that the set is painted gray never a good color for a musical frankly and um you do see office workers at the desks here and there you see that when you come in and uh, there they are and suddenly you're you're thrust into a story about way back when when there was um a uh a nice young man who was going to war and he meets a young woman and they fall in love immediately and they get married that very day. Those of us who know the Judy Garland movie uh, and Robert Walker movie for that matter, the clock from 1945, which would have made an excellent musical in times when musicals were, um, more conventional, so to speak, uh, and um, will immediately have that immediately come to mind because that's what happens in, in, in that movie. But here what it is is that someone from a couple of generations later wants to know about her past and uh, wants to do some looking around and finding out what's going on, what went on, because uh, there are so many unanswered questions, which I'm not going to go into because that's part of the story. And if it resumes uh, somewhere else, then uh, I want you to be surprised. But she becomes somewhat intrigued by um, a, a man who is working in research. And they start this type of flirty um, conversation uh, on the phone and um, she seems to be interested in him and he gets excited that she's interested in him and um, well uh, it's very different when he shows up at her door because both of them have big secrets um, and as people know um, if they've read any books on playwriting, it's always good to have characters have secrets. And both of these have kept secrets from the other. And uh, mostly lies of omission rather than genuine lies. So so you have a lot of stories going on here. And what you also have is beautiful haunting music by Michael Friedman, God rest his soul, uh, who died much too young. And terrific lyrics by Daniel Goldstein. But it doesn't become emotionally involving because you're on this sterile set. Here's a show that really cried out for realistic scenery. Now, I know there are a million sets, but things can be suggested. And since we live in an age of projections, um, I mm-hmm. think you could have gotten away with it that way too. But whoever thought of the idea of the the, the sterile office set um, with the high ceiling and, and say, like Gray, Gray, Battleship Gray, you know, I mean, really, I, 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 understand that Michael Friedman's music is, is not conventional Broadway music, nor is it rock. It's nothing like that at all. It has its, its own style, and um, if it, um, the, the type of musical that always has a cello uh, in it, that type of musical, a chamber musical, a small musical, um, an intimate musical, and a delicate musical, um, but. Wow, I know I would have been pulled into the story much more if I didn't have to look at that set all night. And um, the the soldier, for example, stands on desks um, every now and then, that type of thing. So I really think that's what hurt it tremendously. But I'd love to see a regional theater take it on and uh, use projections um, because I think really the emotional quality will come through at that point. But there was such a distancing um it's one of those shows that you really want to cry at but you can't get your tear ducts to work so
3: May I just say, Peter, that a musical version of The Clock sounds to me like the greatest idea I have ever heard.
2: Oh, God, you watch that movie and every other line's a song, cue. Um, it It's incredible. I just don't know that today there would be an audience for a musical that's set um, in the 40s. Now, mm. you could, of course, update it to, God forbid, um, a newer war. Nah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are so many wonderful things in uh, this couple just is destined to be together. And it's one of Judy Garland's finest performances. And Mm -hmm. she doesn't sing a note. Um, I don't mean to imply that if she sang a note, it wouldn't be one of her finest performances, but I mean, we really get to see Judy (laughs) Garland as as an actress. And, um, and, uh, and of course we knew um, 16 years later, that she was a terrific as an actress when she did judgment at Nuremberg, Mm. but, um, but still, um, if, if there are people out there who are looking for property and want to take it on, watch the movie of the clock and see if you don't find a song cue every other line. It's incredible. Just incredible. How many, um, songs there are right there.
3: Well, believe it or not, I you you. I'm embarrassed. I've never seen it, but I do know the setup and just judging from the setup, I think it would be an amazing musical. So uh, if it's also got all those song cues, as you said, uh, and, and you know, I mean, the, it it could be so um, wonderfully concentrated and and uh, intense. Uh, I think, given the, uh, could, would you just quickly mention the setup?
2: Sure. Um, I was simply uh, in Grand Central Station, or maybe Penn Station, when it was, I think it was Penn Station when it was Penn Station before um, it was decimated. Um, I think the um, soldier just asked for directions and he keeps on asking one question after another. And you can tell they're drawn to each other and they almost lose contact, but uh, one little circumstance after another gets them to, to be together. One of the greatest things is somehow they um they wind up in Central Park um and the buses aren't running. Um uh, it's too late. They they've really lost themselves in conversation. They even wind up kissing there in Central Park. Um and the the look Judy Garland gives is to say it's a look that says yes not only can you kiss me, I want you to kiss me is, is just terrific. But anyway, they come out of Central Park and there's no bus, but who comes along but a guy delivering milk. And, um, and he picks them up and he, he drives them. a charming performance by a character actor named James Gleason. And then what happens is, um, he gets into some sort of brawl in a, in, in, in a, um, a restaurant and they have to deliver the milk. And you know, for one night, that's that's a terrific thing to do. You know, you wouldn't want to do it every day. But I mean, it's sort of fun to have an experience like that. And I mean, I, I certainly hear a number called delivering milk under those circumstances. Um, they wind up at City Hall and they wind up getting married. And, you know, there are women, um, uh, char women uh, cleaning the floors and all that while they're getting married. And and she says, you know, I, I'm not. I didn't even have flowers. Well, you know, that's a song uh, I certainly think, you know, and so, <laughs> so, and eventually he has to go to war and she says to him, you know, you know, you're coming back because this wouldn't have happened. If you weren't uh, coming back, this mm. this shows how lucky you are. Mm. Look what's happened in one day, you know, mm. and you know, um, of course, there's no guarantee that he's going to come back, but it's very moving. Really. I urge everybody to see the clock mm. and especially <laughs> people looking for a property to musicalize. Again, I think it may be too late considering the type of musical that's successful today, but there would have been a time when the clock would have been a long running show. Yeah anyway um you know let me point out that um there are terrific performances in um in the in uh, the unknown soldier and especially eric Lochtefeld, um who plays the uh researcher who uh, comes with the secret and um i know i've mentioned eric in the past because i saw him when he was a student at Concord carlisle high school in massachusetts playing pseudolus and um I've mentioned many times how the director had to come, had him come into the audience and um, take somebody on stage, and it was dark, and he came into the audience and he reached for a kid who happened to be in a wheelchair and uh, God almighty, what do you do? And he was so adept. I was sitting right behind the kid in the wheelchair. (laughs) And I'm telling you, it was amazing how he went into an eeny, meeny, miny, mo" situation and Mm. picked the kid behind him. And the kid in the wheelchair thought it was hilarious. I mean, (laughs) one of the greatest, maybe the greatest improv I've ever seen. And I'm not surprised that Eric has had a career. And I'm delighted that he has. Um, So he's really quite wonderful. Jay McKenzie, Perry Sherman, Kristen Anderson, James Crichton. All of them are terrific. And who else shows up? Estelle Parsons. Uh, doesn't have a big part. Not at all. Not at all. But um, here she is so many years after the fact. You know, I mean, she made her Broadway debut in Happy Hunting. You know, and um, that's many decades ago. And she's still at, which is so wonderful to see her. Um And. Also, um, I'll grant you, it was a long time ago, about twenty years ago. But she still is in the top ten interviews I have ever had in my life. Um, she just tremendous uh, raconteur, and um, and I hope she still is. But um, she has a tiny part. I'll grant you, she comes in at the beginning, she comes in at the end. But it's wonderful to see Estelle Parsons still wanting to do it.
1: Okay, so. Um... Yeah, what are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> what are we say here? It was supposed to run through March 29th. Uh, it's been suspended. I don't know if it will come back, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes in case you want to check it out. Um, Michael, we've, we've been talking a lot this morning. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to uh, take a break and get a drink of water.
3: Oh, <laughs> I have my water here. Well, because well, you
1: saw the March birthday show starring the Drinkwater brothers. <laughs> oh. <So. laughs> oh, I see. It was a segue, James. <laughs> I see. Matthew and John Drinkwater uh, doing the March birthday show. Famous songs by famous people born this month down at 54 Below. You got to see that with a handful of other
3: people. So tell us about it. Oh, yes. They were only two of the incredible talents in this show, mm-hmm. uh, as we know, uh, science 54 below God love them, uh, is trying to keep the place really going and really full and very active. Uh, they usually have at least two shows a night, sometimes three. And, uh, they're always looking for, uh, new, I don't want to say gimmicks, uh, uh, because maybe that has a negative connotation, but new concepts out of the uh, box f- thinking for producers. yes and for and for series uh you know various various different types of series, so what Scott Siegel, God love him, has come up with is uh the birthday show, uh, and every month <laughs> there will be a show celebrating the birthdays of various uh performing artists and uh, you know composers and lyricists uh so the March birthday show. Um, had uh, uh was was really pretty great because first of all to start out with they had uh, not only Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd as having their birthdays on the same day uh, but also I had forgotten uh, again I'm embarrassed Stephen Schwartz is a March birthday
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, then several others uh, uh, but th- but this is. Uh, 54. And so it's not limited to show music. Uh, So they had a lot of other uh, people as well. For example, Aretha Franklin, etc. But let me first uh, say, so this was uh, Sunday, March 8th at at Feinside 54 Below. Scott Siegel was the host and creator and writer. Uh, Ross Patterson at the piano. Um, And in this case, it was just him, no no other, uh, instruments, no other musicians, but, but he played so beautifully, uh, that it, that you didn't, you hardly missed any, anyone else. Um, and the, the, uh, the show tunes or, uh, musical theater related songs that were sung on this evening were as follows. Maybe this time, uh which was sung by Jenny Jer- Lee Sterner. That was a song, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, that was originally written by Candor and Ebb for Liza Minnelli, uh, just as a standalone song mm-hmm. uh, before uh, it was put into the movie of Cabaret. Uh, so, and uh, so, uh, I mean, I'm o- I've always loved that song. and thought it fits in so beautifully. And of course now it's, uh, I would say permanently a part of the score of the stage production of cabaret in the revised version that's been done ever since uh, it first came to light in, uh, well, I guess in London first. And then at, uh, at, at studio 54 upstairs uh, at that theater uh, in the roundabout production, the Sam Mendes, Rob Marshall production. So in Jenny. The movie, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. In, in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jenny Lee Stern did a great, great job with that um this guy ben jones uh that i just recently became aware of in one of scott siegel's shows at town hall and he um is primarily uh he's uh, an opera singer and but he also sings like rock opera type music really really well he had done um uh gethsemane in, in one of scott's previous shows uh but he sang I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face from My Fair Lady uh, because, the, because um, Rex Harrison's birthday is in March. And uh, that was really great. And it and, uh, was a nice surprise to me because it was very different from the other things that I had previously heard and seen Ben sing. Um, let's see. Other show tunes. Uh, ah, well, Sondheim. Uh, I, th- I thought this was a great choice because it's obviously not something you hear every day. Uh, Gabrielle Stravelli, who oh. is so amazing. Mm-hmm. She has such an amazing voice, sang There Won't Be Trumpets. And I just love that song. So that made me very, very happy. Um, uh, the final number of the night was Music of the Night, uh, representing Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, sung by Cooper Groden who I had seen in a couple of shows at musicals tonight in character roles and only thereafter became aware that he has a phenomenal voice and he's actually played the phantom. um, I forget where on tour somewhere, I think maybe, you know, I think a major tour, Um, uh, but the penultimate number of the night was in fact, John and Matthew drink water doing for good by Steven Schwartz. Um, It seemed like uh, about, A year ago or so, I started to uh, see and hear this song performed by men uh, rather than by two women. Uh, Of course, in in Wicked, it is it's it's sung by Elphaba and Glinda or Galinda, as you care to call her. (laughs) Uh, And then I, uh, you know, Wicked Wicked has been running for years now, and and I started to hear the song sung as a solo. in various cabaret shows and concerts and things like that. And I almost thought for a while that it worked better as a solo. Uh but then I started to hear it uh being sung by two men. And I I maybe it's just partly the uh you know, the change that, that makes it, it makes you uh experience it in a slightly different way. I, I think it works beautifully when sung by two men, when, of course, it's done very well. And John and Matthew, uh, of course, is a whole nother level because they're identical twins. Um, so when you sing that song with those lyrics and you're identical twins, it just gives it a, gives it a whole deeper level that's very, very moving. Um, I, and actually, this is the third or fourth time that I have heard John and Matthew perf- this number live uh, it seems to have been almost become almost a signature song for them when they when they're singing as a as a duo rather than solo and they they really did just an amazing job of it in fact um, I'm pretty sure there's video of it I will send you the link because I really think it's it's worth watching I actually sent it to Stephen Schwartz and I hope he gets to look at it at some point because I think he'd be very very pleased um, so anyway, it, this was a great show. There's so many other uh, songs I didn't mention. Uh, Breaking Up is Hard to Do, uh, uh, to commemorate Neil Sedaka's birthday, was sung by Sophie Ropekko. Uh The Aretha Franklin song was Ain't No Way, uh, Alison Sem- Semis. Um, oh, John Drinkwater's solo was Fire and Rain by James Taylor. Uh, that's a very significant March birthday and um uh that lady gaga uh, well song uh, well to celebrate her birthday that song shallow from a star is born was done by jenny lee stern and cooper groden so uh et cetera et cetera unforgettable uh in celebration of Nat King Cole was done by Ben Jones and uh, Matthew Drinkwater's solo was wanted dead or alive, which (laughs) is a John Bon Jovi song and he's another March birthday. So um, bravo to all of these people, bravo to Scott uh, for coming up with a neat new idea to help uh, fill the slots at, at 54 Um, 54 is one of the venues that uh, initially it seemed like they were going to try to stay open uh, during this, Co- this awful COVID situation, uh, but then they—I think a lot of places decided that it just they didn't want the responsibility of, um, you know, just the moral responsibility aside from from ev- everything else of of possibly causing more people to become infected just because of social interaction. It's such such a difficult decision. I My heart breaks for all of these places and all of the performers and everyone involved. And um, I hope that, like every other venue, that 54 will be back as soon as possible.
1: Okay. So uh, next up, Peter, you got... Uh where was it? Over to Signature to see Cambodian Rock Band. Uh, so tell us, what do you think of Cambodian Rock Band? It
2: wasn't at all what I expected um, <laughs> at all. Uh, the title seems to suggest that we're going to... Uh, Follow a Cambodian rock band, and of course, we do, but um, this is a, a play about politics more than anything else. And when I say play, I mean play because it's a show where occasionally uh, we see the Cambodian rock band play a number. There are a, a, a couple of book songs, at least one, maybe two. Um, but for the most part, when you hear music, it's uh, five people um, on a bandstand um, with their guitars and the drums and what have you playing rock music, okay um but what a serious story this is because this is going back to the 70s when things were really tough in Cambodia when um the uh khmer rouge um were really running the show and um so what we have here is uh, a number of flashbacks to that era now who do we have here? Well, we have a father and daughter. The daughter is an American who's in Cambodia uh, doing research on what happened way back when and um, her father played i'm sorry to say in very stereotypical um, father is an asshole type fashion um, so many times that happens and you know it's it's a little too much to see that happen, but I understand why this choice was made because The father was a political prisoner, and we want to see a real difference when we go back to the flashbacks where he is a political prisoner, and he is not just a a man who um, is obsessed with uh, his daughter doing the right thing here or there and um, trying to keep secrets from her and using any means possible to keep those secrets from her partly because he didn't, doesn't want her to know what happened to him because it's a little too severe what happened to him. unless a lot too severe. Um, <clears throat> so it starts out very strangely in the sense that we have a happy-go-lucky narrator play, uh, played by Francis Jouet, uh, a very fine actor, somebody I've enjoyed many, many times, um, even the half hour I spent with him trapped in an elevator once. Um, charming guy. <laughs> <clears throat> um and doesn't lose his cool under those circumstances. But anyway, um, he's, he's a narrator at the beginning, but later he plays um, someone who tortures political prisoners and uh, does so very effectively. Lauren Yee wrote the play. It is a play. And uh, Lauren Lee wrote the play. And obviously she has done her research because um, these scenes in the prison are so harrowing. And uh well, to be fair, I'm, I'm sure some of it is, is simply Lauren Yee as well, being able to imagine what went on in those situations. But the way that um, the mind-fucking that goes on, let's put it that way, is really powerful. And Francis Jouet does very well. Now, he's a very slight guy. Um, I would guess he's around mm, 5'7", maybe. And uh, I doubt that he weighs more than 130 pounds. And yet you do see that uh, from this little man, once he has the power, he knows how to use it. And he can be astonishingly cruel. And uh, so there are many, many harrowing harrowing scenes in this play that make you feel so bad for this man who you've seen simply be a jerk uh, in the earlier scenes played very broadly, very broadly. And so you, um, you do see what happened to this man. And as a result of that, you can begin to understand why he's turned out the way he has and why he is so flustered in trying to keep A number of truths from his daughter. It's not just a case that he wants to spare her the details that he was tortured once. No, no, no. It's not just that. But um, it is a case where there are many, I mentioned secrets before for the the unknown soldier. There are plenty of secrets here as well. So um, I can really understand why Joe Ngo, I guess it's pronounced as N-G-O, um, I, I do think that, um, the way he was directed, um, uh, makes a little more sense when you see what goes on. It's a long show. It's two and a half hours. And yet, it's so riveting. So riveting. So I do hope it comes back. But for those who expect simply a glorified rock concert, this is not it at all. And that's what I expected it to be, especially when I got in there, the opening numbers, they are playing this rock music. And um, I said, okay, well, this is what it's going to be. It's, it's just going to be a glorified concert. No, it isn't at all. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that um, this rock music that was popular in the early 70s in Cambodia with tremendous Western influences, Um, Mm -hmm. sort of, um, let's say influence rather than knockoff, but anyway, um, was eventually banned. And um, so that poses a problem as well. The people who play um, in the rock band have to do a great deal of doubling, and they do so very, very effectively. And um, I was very surprised at this one. Um, It's always something when you go in expecting one thing, getting another, and liking what you got when you didn't think you were going to um, get anything like it at all. So I was very, very impressed with Cambodian rock band,
1: and uh, I wish it well. I was really impressed with it too. Um I, I mm, My only uh issues with Cambodian Rock Band was um I uh, I felt like some sometimes they threw in a song kind of Uh, it it didn't really, yeah, yeah, arbitrarily, and it didn't move the story forward, and then the whole, oh no, there's no moving forward, (laughs) yeah, it didn't move, none of the songs moved the story forward, and, uh, we got that they were a rock band, and they were dedicated to each other as a band, and that the, uh, I I understood what they were trying to do, but I won't disagree
2: with that, the
1: final thing, post story, when they, did two songs after the show was all over. Uh, I was like, as you pointed out, Peter, it's a long show, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I didn't. I, I feel like they didn't need a Joseph type of mega mix at the at the end there. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I felt that it, it took away from the serious story that was just told and the very touching story and the amazing talent that was on stage and. And you know, bringing actors through the audience in order to rile up the audience and get them to stand up and dance and cheer and things. I was like, I felt it denigrated what they had just achieved on stage. Um, but I really liked it, and I hope that we see this again in some mm. other some other venue. Mm, mm. Uh, so that was a Cambodian rock band over at Signature, uh, and uh, we'll let you know if it shows up somewhere else. Uh, Michael, you got over to NYU to see "Making Gay History Before Stonewall." So tell us about this uh, presentation.
3: Yeah, this was a student production that I guess normally I might not review, but since uh, we, you know, we uh, have hmm. a lot of uh, gaps, yes, <laughs> uh, and also it uh, it really was very interesting. I'm so glad that I went to see it. Uh, there's a note. From the creator, director of the show, Joe Salvatore, in the in the uh, program that actually explains it better than I can and very succinctly. Um, It says the verbatim documentary theater play you were about to experience was created and adapted from interviews conducted principally by Eric Marcus from 1988 to 1990 with various individuals associated with the LGBTQ plus rights movement. Eric initially assembled these oral histories into a book called making history 1992, then a second book called Making Gay History, 2002, and finally into an ongoing podcast series that has had over 3 million downloads worldwide. Um, our listeners may know Eric from any of that. Also, he wrote uh, a book about Greg Laganis called Breaking the Surface. Uh, years ago that was made mm-hmm. into a TV movie, and that that got a lot of notoriety uh, he 's really quite um, active as a as a gay historian and he uh, uh, is a, a, a kind of fun little full disclosure quote unquote is I guess that he and I are distantly related though not oh. though not through blood because now let me get this right um, my sister-in-law's stepmother is his is eric's <laughs> cousin
2: <laughs>
3: well i'm sure you're in the will <laughs> yeah i think it's in there somewhere um but anyway eric is is highly respected and i actually got to meet him uh briefly at at this show and so i said you know i i uh we have a connection and he's like oh oh that's great (laughs) anyway (laughs) um this uh was a documentary style show uh with lots of wonderful projections and uh there was so much i liked about it um but let me get the negative out of the way first i think that they made an odd decision to uh well two things uh each of the actors in it play at least two people. It seems like they all played two historical figures in the gay rights movement. And it does really follow the story up right to Stonewall, uh, but not really including it. Uh, Some of the names that, that are the most famous uh, some of the most famous historical figures represented here are, I would say Dr. Evelyn Hooker, Frank Kameny, Bayard Rustin, um, Harry Hay, Marsha P. Johnson, uh, and Sylvia Rivera. Those are some of the most famous ones. But all of them, as I said, are played uh, – e- one, one actor playing two of those people. And regardless of uh, any attempt to uh, coincide in terms of anything, uh, race – gender age obviously not age because these are you know for the most part um college students uh but uh i think that that the that the combination of no coordination in terms of that uh and then or any of those elements and then plus each of them playing two people i i thought that rendered it Uh, a lot more confusing than it would have been otherwise. And I don't know why they made the decision, especially the double casting thing, because I mean, I I don't know specifically the situation, but this is a a college production. This is NYU Steinhardt, by the way, the program in educational theater at NYU. And presumably um, they have all of these people available uh, for free. You know, (laughs) Uh, they don't have to pay them uh, as they would uh, normal a- actors in a normal Broadway or off Broadway show, and and obviously that is a consideration in in commercial productions. But I don't think that would have been an issue here. So I'm not sure why they didn't have just one person. Uh, per historical figure, and that would have given a lot more opportunity to a lot more people. Uh, maybe this pool was very limited for some reason. I, I again, I don't know the details, but I, I think that was um, a mistake. And also, since there are, since so many of these historical f- figures represented are were actually people of color, for example, uh, Bayard Rustin, Sylvia Rivera, etc. I don't think that they necessarily needed to do the colorblind uh, thing or the genderblind thing. So I, uh, I I just don't think that whole approach was a good one. But having said that, uh, I'm really glad that I saw this. I, the interviews are incredible. Uh, all of the actors were wonderful. The clips and slides were breathtaking. And uh, also this, did I mention, this was in the Provincetown Playhouse at 133 McDougal Street, which is a historic site as it is uh, because of its associations with, um, you know, so many great theater artists, including going back to Eugene Uh, Mm O'Neill. So, so uh, there was, all, all in all, it was a very historic, um, Performance, and I'm I'm really glad that I went. Uh, I do try to attend uh, college productions at various institutions, on top of all the commercial theater that I see. Sometimes it's not always uh, that easy to find out about them, and I have to rely on friends of mine to scope out (laughs) um, uh, information. But either way, I I do try to get to uh, as many of them as I can, and, and I'm very happy that I got to this one.
1: All right. So um, that was Making Gay History before Stonewall at NYU's Provincetown Playhouse. Uh, it was a single performance, as far as I can tell, from the NYU perf-
3: uh, website. Is that correct? I believe so. Uh, uh, yeah, I believe so. If not, it was very limited. It's, 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 it would have been over anyway, even if we hadn't had mm. this COVID situation. Ironically enough, um, looking on
2: uh, the movies I have on demand on my um, Spectrum TV uh, menu, uh, there was a 1984 movie called Before Stonewall, which I watched last week, and um, a terrific documentary with uh, people from yore um, talking about what it was like. And uh, I think it's really something that um, young people should investigate to really see how pervasively awful it was for so many people before. Um, well, not just, uh, it's not like everything ended in, in um, June of 69, that things got rosy after that, but nevertheless, um, seeing how bad it was before then one story after another um, narrated by Rita Mae Brown, who many may know from the, her very famous novel, Ruby fruit jungle. Yes. And, um, So, uh, many celebrities, many people you didn't know who you'd like to know as a result of this film. So, um, when I first saw your message, Michael, saying that you were going to be talking about this, that's what I thought you were going to be talking about. I, I noticed then the subtitle and noticed it wasn't. But um, but it was really a coincidence that I watched that uh, film this week and uh, you saw this show this week. Yes.
1: Okay, so that wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to the trivia question, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded Download it to Apple Podcast for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about. And uh, our plan is to keep doing shows, um, because there's other things to talk about, and certainly we mentioned that off-Broadway shows are, some of them are still going on, so we'll piece it together, so please uh, keep listening to Broadway Radio. So, Peter, do you have a question for this week's trivia?
2: Yeah, you wouldn't expect that the musicals The Cradle Will Rock and Lolita My Love (laughs) would have something in common. But they do, and
1: I don't mean that they both had trouble opening. What is it? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Find fine fortune and fame? Did I have any impact on who they became? Do they even remember my name? And you're another year older, and they're the same, the same. So the plan is a plan with this very nice, not so nice, as you're discovering man. And the women you treat are not like you at all. How could you have missed that before? They're entitled and rude and rich. Your mother and living for leaving her there to die. And you're back in the house. And you're back in this town. And you find yourself wearing her old dressing gown, never leaving the house, and ranting and raving. Just like your grandmother used to do Maybe your mother was crazy too I give away children I give away children And you thought that the plan gave you some room to choose the plan, and you'd never have anything to lose. So you know when he asks for custody, you could give it away, so. you're not gonna let your kid be destroyed by